Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist activist of the show, investigative journalist Gabriel Geiger of Vice Media Group. This episode also includes yet another look at American voter suppression, this time in contrast to other democracies in Why Are Republicans Chicken? Voter Suppression, Comparing the U.S. to Other Democracies. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hochsprung and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Dominique Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Why are Republicans chicken when it comes to democracy? Voter suppression. Comparing the U.S., to other democracies. They ain't nobody here but us chickens. They ain't nobody here at all. So quiet yourself. Stop that fuss. They ain't nobody here but us. We chickens try to sleep. And you bust in. And hobble, 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 hobble with your chin. They ah, Louis Jordan sang it well back in 1947. With Ain't Nobody Here But Us Chickens, he could have been describing the assorted present-day attempts by Republican legislatures and governors around America to suppress voting rights since the 2020 election. Yes, it appears there is one party in this country that is afraid of democracy, afraid of the voice of the people, the vox populi, and that is the chicken shit Republican Party. Chicken shit bastard. Just who do you think you are, chicken shit bastard? A quick Google search for how many Republican legislatures have been moving forward voter suppression legislation since the 2020 election reveals the following headlines from reputable sources. State GOPs have already introduced dozens of bills restricting voting access in 2021. From Vox.com, January 29. Why Republicans are moving to fix elections that weren't broken. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. When you get the urge to meddle, just resist it. From NPR's Morning Edition, February 28. How GOP-backed voting measures could create hurdles for tens of millions of voters. From the Washington Post, March 11. And 361 voter suppression bills have already been introduced this year. Now that's a lot of damage! Republicans in state legislatures are dramatically escalating their efforts to restrict voting rights. From Vox.com, April 1st. If you smell the aroma of flop sweat... ...and hear the loud clucking of chickens... ...you would be right. This has nothing to do with trusting in democracy. This is pure political cowardice, a.k.a. fear of the voters. The Brennan Center for Justice at NYU works to track such bills and has been following the deluge of reactionary lawmaking coming from a number of cowardly legislatures around the country. Legislatures such as the insurrectionist stalwarts Georgia, Florida, and Texas. The South will rise again, man! As well as seditious states like Arizona. According to Brennan, as of April 1st, quote, five restrictive bills have already been signed into law. In addition, at least 55 restrictive bills in 24 states are moving through legislatures. 29 have passed at least one chamber, while another 26 have had some sort of committee action. For example, a hearing, an amendment, or a committee vote. The Brennan Center further notes that Most restrictive bills take aim at absentee voting, while nearly a quarter seek stricter voter ID requirements. State lawmakers also aim to make voter registration harder. This is difficult. Expand voter roll purges or adopt flawed practices that would risk improper purges 
and cut back on early voting. We'll be there, but you won't. The states that have seen the largest number of restrictive bills introduced are Texas, 49 bills, Georgia, 25 bills, and Arizona, 23 bills. Bills are actively moving in the Texas and Arizona state houses, and Georgia and Florida have enacted omnibus voter suppression bills in the past few months. Don't vote. Don't vote. Everything's fine the way it is. Many bills seek to undermine the power of local officials. After county election officials conducted elections during a pandemic and stood up to pressure to manipulate the results, state lawmakers are now seeking new criminal penalties to target these officials. And as I write this on Memorial Day weekend 2021, Texas is being delayed by courageous Democrats from passing Senate Bill 7 an omnibus voting disenfranchisement masquerading as an election security bill. This was being moved forward in spite of the fact that their last election was universally seen as fair and secure. According to the Washington Post, quote, the measure would make it illegal for election officials to send out unsolicited mail ballot applications, empower partisan poll watchers, and ban practices such as drop boxes and drive-through voting. Sometimes we don't actually need every single product that's recommended to us. That were popularized in heavily Democratic Harris County, home of Houston, last year. In a last-minute addition, language is inserted in the bill making it easier to overturn an election no longer requiring evidence that fraud actually altered an outcome of a race. You know, something happened there. I mean, something bad happened. And I hope you join that, uh, that stop because if you... Uh, you know, I hope you go to back two years as opposed to just checking, you know, one against the other because that would just be sort of a... Uh, yeah, a signature check that didn't mean anything. But. So, if, say, a Republican Texas Senate doesn't like an upset victory by a Democrat for Senate or even President, they would have a legal right to overrule the popular vote. What the cluck? <laughs> now, those are lawmakers who truly care about democracy, who really want to know what their citizens want. I think not! We just did an article on voter suppression in last July's Snap Session episode, and here we go again. I think I'm in a, a time loop. Why do these Republicans even pretend they are living in a democracy? It's not like this in other real democracies. In fact, let's take a look at other places that have representative elections. No, not China or Russia. The U.S. belongs to an international group called the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, a 37-member group of free market countries that discuss and develop economic and social policy and compare notes on their democratic participation. Take, for example, Sweden. According to ABC News, voting in Sweden, unlike constructing IKEA furniture, is not a huge headache. The Swedes have a virtually automatic enrollment system, which tracks every citizen's name, address, birth, and marital status. Voting registration is automatic, and for every election, proof of registration material is sent to the homes of every eligible Swedish citizen in the national database. The result is that voters turn out at much higher percentages than Americans. In Australia, voting is compulsory at a risk of a roughly $20 fine, but their government also ensures that their citizens vote by making it easier to do so. Aussies, like the Swedes, keep a federal list of its eligible voters, which they use to put together local voting lists. The Australian government is also much more persistent in ensuring that all citizens register. If you're a new citizen, you get an enrollment form. When you get your test results in your final year of high school, you get an enrollment form. If you move but don't bother to tell the government, they'll find out anyway by cross-checking the national database against other sources, like billing records from utility companies and the post office. Call it a nanny state, but the Australian government wants people to vote. Belgium. 
also mandates voting on election days. The result is very high voter participation, with the last election showing 87.2% turnout. Granted, this is hard to enforce, but Belgium has laws that make it harder to get a job in the public sector if you don't vote. And you can lose your right to vote altogether if you don't vote in four consecutive elections. Encouraging and even mandating voting seems a good thing, but punishing non-voting strikes some people as harsh. Still, it is a better system than when politicians actively limit the franchise. The tiny Baltic nation of Estonia is making waves for introducing something that seems completely logical in the digital age, online voting. In Estonia, a national ID card, required for every citizen in the country, can be used to vote via the internet. Prit Winkel, Estonia's National Electoral Committee advisor, told CNN that they had detected no serious, quote, attempts to tamper with the votes, end quote, but that the entire process was based on trust in the system because no paper trail is left by the votes. According to their election commission, 25% of the people who voted in Estonia's 2011 election voted online. Last year, the U.S. had the best voter turnout we've had in years, with 67% of all registered voters age 18 and older casting votes, up 5% from 2016, according to uscensus.gov. This was a great improvement and should be saluted and encouraged. Up till last year, according to OECD and other sources, the U.S. had ranked 138th out of 172 countries in voter turnout. I gotta tell you, that, that, that sounds awful. This compares with other allies like France, typically 67.3%, and Japan, 68.7%, and Germany, 80.2%. Getting people to the polls is a mark of national pride in most democracies. Making voting easier is evidence that a democracy values its citizen input. According to Wikipedia, quote, In the United States and most Latin American nations, voters must go through separate voter registration procedures before they are allowed to vote. This two-step process now I got the green for two step. Oh, Lord. quite clearly decreases turnout. U.S. states with no or easier registration requirements have larger turnouts. Other methods of improving turnout include making voting easier through more available absentee polling, improved access to polls, such as increasing the number of possible voting locations, lowering the average time voters have to spend waiting in line, or requiring companies to give workers some time off on voting day. This fucks up my plan. This is fucking bullshit. Okay, this, these fucking assholes, this fuck, these fucking assholes, the fuck is their problem, man? This is fucking typical. In addition, according to the Brennan Center, more voting restrictions lead to what is called, quote, rational non-voting, where people don't vote because the effort it takes to vote is greater than the benefit of them not voting. Hey, this man just, I don't want to do this no more. These laws add to the cost of voting with requirements that make it more difficult to vote. But why would a democracy make voting more difficult? This is hard. According to Election Canada's study of why is turnout higher in some countries than in others, our results suggest that turnout is indeed higher when the electoral legislation facilitates the exercise of the right to vote. Well, duh. More specifically, all other things being equal, Turnout is about 10% higher in countries where it is possible to vote by mail, in advance, or by proxy than in countries where none of these options are available. In addition, the study found that a certain number of institutional variables help increase or decrease voter turnout. It is clear that turnout can be substantially increased if voting is made compulsory. I gotta do it, I gotta do it, you gotta do it, you gotta do it. Provided that the legislation prescribes definite penalties. We showed that measures of a more administrative nature would also help to increase voter turnout. Turnout is clearly higher in countries that facilitate voting 
by allowing voting by mail in advance or by proxy. In the USA, another factor making voting fairness difficult to measure is the fact that it is a federal system with different voting systems in all 50 states. It's complicated. Very complicated. The Canadian study noted, quote, essentially there are 50 different elections going on on the same day. In some cases even, if counties are running their elections differently within a state, then you can have hundreds of elections going on, each of them with their own set of rules and procedures. And that is quite notable about the American context, unquote. This is hard. Last year, Foreign Policy Magazine, a journal that deals mostly in international issues, did an in-depth report, 10 Problematic Ways in Which U.S. Voting Differs from the World's. The study suggested a series of reforms to make our elections more democratic, including having Election Day on a weekend or making it a national holiday, making elections consistent across the country instead of different across states, instituting a national election commission, making voter registration automatic, simplifying voter identification with a nationally accepted ID card, instituting standardized balloting and counting processes, and eliminating all forms of voter suppression. Well, I thought it was obvious. The House of Representatives recently passed the For the People Act, which would curb voter suppression and make it easier for all Americans to register to vote and cast a ballot. It would outlaw partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts and reform our campaign finance laws to amplify the voices of ordinary Americans, combat corruption, and make federal campaign spending more transparent. It is presently pending as S-1 in the Senate. It is backed by the Democratic Party, as well as numerous organizations like Indivisible and MoveOn.org. Together with the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would restore the full protections of the landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965, hobbled by the Supreme Court in 2013, the For the People Act would move us measurably closer to realizing the promise of democracy for all citizens. In 2018, Martin Luther King's 92-year-old cousin, Christine Jordan, showed up at her polling station in Atlanta, Georgia, just like she had for elections in the previous 50 years since her cousin had marched in Selma, Alabama for voting rights back in 1965. Miss Jordan was told there was no record of her voter registration. For her, this was a return to the Jim Crow era and was most decidedly not democratic. In her youth, Ms. Jordan had faced a dizzying array of poll taxes, literacy tests, understanding clauses, and newfangled voter registration rules adopted in the era of Jim Crow laws, all designed to evade and undermine the 15th Amendment's provision prohibiting laws restricting voting on account of race. Ms. Jordan was justifiably outraged knowing she deserves to live in the real democracy her cousin fought and died for. There is no place in a democracy for a party that is afraid of the vox populi, that is afraid of its own people. If a party cannot win votes based on its policies, it belongs on the trash heap of history. If your party is too chicken to face the people, it's time to go. We want democracy like Sweden and Australia and Belgium and Estonia. Get out of our way, Republican Party. You are the party of chickens. Chicken shit bastard. Just who do you think you are? Your brain's about the size of a dime. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. 
We depend on the support of listeners like you. Hi, I'm here for Snap Sessions with Gabriel Geiger. Gabriel is a former student of mine who has been living in Europe for some years. He is also a journalist for Vice Magazine, Vice Media. Gabriel Geiger, we welcome you to Snap Sessions. Thanks so much for having me, Doug. Uh, it's such a pleasure. You know, I've known you now, I think since you were in eighth grade, you were Giacomo's young cousin who was on the high school improv team, and you were in the audience, I think. We did an eighth grade show, and I got a chance to meet you then. So it's been a while. We've been we've been friends. I think you may be the youngest person we've interviewed on Snap Sessions to this point. Wow, I feel very, very honored by that, I have to say. You know, when I first met you, you grew up mostly in Mendocino. Tell us about your upbringing. I know your dad was a filmmaker. Tell us about your mom and dad and growing up in a bilingual household in Mendocino. Right, yeah. So, so you're right. I, I grew up mostly in, in Mendocino. Uh, my dad is, is a filmmaker and my mom, yeah, is, is Italian. So we have a, a, had a bilingual household growing up. I had a great childhood. We moved around a little bit because my dad went on location on set a couple times. So we spent some time in Texas. We spent some time in New York City. We spent half of the year in South Africa, which was amazing. And then I spent two years... Uh, in, in middle school, I spent in Los Angeles. I moved around a bit, but Mendocino was always the base, right? So it was always go here to South Africa, but then come back to Mendocino. So we went all these directions, but Mendocino is always the place we came, we came back to. What kind of stuff were you interested in as a child? What were your fun things to do? Yeah, I was a huge reader. I was an avid reader from, from the get-go. So I was always reading. I always had a book in my hands. And I w was a huge history fanatic and especially Roman history, which makes sense because my mom is from Rome. Uh, so I think maybe subconsciously I was trying to connect with that side of, of my heritage a bit. So I'd read all about ancient Rome. Uh, I remember that very, very clearly. And I had stacks and stacks of these books about, about ancient Rome. And I still love history. I was a huge history fanatic. I loved maps as well. I had a very big obsession with maps. And that continues today. I love scrolling around on Google Maps. When I was a kid, I loved drawing maps as well, although I don't, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I remember, apropos uh, your love of ancient Rome, I remember you getting in teasing contests with the Moore sisters, Hannah and uh, Julia Moore. They were half Greek, and so it was sort of a Greece versus Rome kind of competition. What are some of your favorite uh, highlights about Roman history? What are some things that you really seize on? Oh, there's so much. I, I think one of the amazing things about Roman history, I mean, all of history, but especially Rome from, from my perspective, is there is this very theatrical element to Roman history, right? I mean, you have Julius Caesar being stabbed by um, Brutus, you know, at Tu Brute, and then you have the uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra. There's this very theatrical side of, of Roman history, which always really grabbed me as well. And then, of course, it's also very interesting as you have the Roman Republic as well, which is, you know, obviously... The democracy in the United States is somewhat modeled on, on the Roman Republic. I think those things combined always always very much interested me. But then, of course, the, I think the biggest thing is I went to Rome itself. And when you go to Rome itself, suddenly that imagination becomes all that more real. You're looking around and you see the ruins and you can almost picture in your mind maybe how it could have looked back then. So there was always... I guess that more tangible aspect as well always interested me. I must say I feel the same way. The theatricality and all that of it kind of pushes its way forward. I read a lot of Plutarch's Lives when I was uh, in college, and it just brought it. They also did things like they trusted things like auguries. You know, they would cut open a pigeon's stomach and there would be some augury there. We can't invade today because the, the pigeon's stomach tells us something different or something like I mean, I was fascinated by all of that stuff. When you were in high school, you joined up uh, their freshman year with the Mendocino High School Improv Club, which I was a coach of. You were quite at home right away. You had multiple friends on the team, Nick Barrett, uh, for one, and you had a wonderful teasing relationship with Nick. Tell us about your experiences as a young improviser and what you might have gleaned from that. Yeah, it's great. I mean, there's so much. Uh, I I loved improv, and I came to it. I was I was very lucky that I started. I think in my freshman year, so I had a lot of time to sort of ease into it. And I think something that's very interesting about improv, or for me, was the sort of learning curve you have. And it's probably something you'll recognize as well. As I think when you first start doing improv, you kind of go for a bit more of what I call like the cheap laughs, right? Where you're doing something, and and you know you'll get a laugh from it. 
Um, but over time, you really learn that the best laughs you get and the best scenes are when you're supporting your other teammates and really working together to create the best scene possible. And that was something I learned over time. I think I used to be more focused on the cheap laughs and that was my metric of you know how well I was doing. And over time, I learned, no, it's about creating a great scene. And so in that sense, one of the biggest things I learned from improv was storytelling, right? How do you create a, a great scene with cohesive characters where things actually make sense? Of course, there's all the other things being quick on your feet, a sense of humor. But I think the biggest things I'll, I'll always take from it is this lesson in storytelling and, and, and teamwork as well. Have you done any in the last time since you've been in Holland? No, I, I wish I had. I had a professor who was very into improv and, and just off the fly, we started talking about it. And, you know, we both, you know, he's like, oh, you do it. You did improv in high school. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he was like, yeah, I know this, uh, this troupe. You should come out and, and, you know, try out. And I don't know. I just kind of left to the back of my head and, and I forgot about it. But I have seen some improv shows, though, which were great. I, I loved it. There's a, actually a really vibrant live comedy scene here in general, but also improv. There's a lot of shows, a lot of open mics as well. Uh, so I've been to a lot of shows, but I, I haven't done it myself. And I, I, I'm kicking myself. I wish I had. Well, you know, you're young. There's many opportunities ahead of you. And um, we played actually at the Melkweg in Amsterdam. Uh, yeah. Tracy and I did. And we also coached. I coached some in, in uh, Amsterdam and in Netherlands. So there's multiple opportunities still to come. Apropos uh, high school, I think it was your junior year, you uh, applied for a Rotary uh, scholarship to become an exchange student. For those of us who have been exchange students, um, I think it's a transformative year for most people. And uh, you got chosen to study in Denmark. Tell us a little bit about your year as an exchange student. And you also learned Danish. Yeah, so I went to Copenhagen, which is the capital uh, of Denmark, uh, although it's, it's a bit of a small city. Uh, I went, I stayed for a year. I lived with three different Danish families. And uh, one thing I, I always remember when I first went to school, because in Mendocino High School, people are usually more colorful. They wear colors. And I remember showing up in uh, blue jeans and, and I think like a teal t-shirt. And I walked into school in Denmark and everybody is wearing black, <laughs> all black, head to toe in, in high school in Denmark and just feeling like, whoa. And then of course, I went to public Danish high school. So you sit down and all my classes are in Danish. And I remember also the first minute my teacher opened her mouth and started speaking in Danish and just understanding so little of it, you know, on the first day and being really, I'm in a bit of culture shock, like, wow, I'm, I, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on here. But over time, of course, I started learning. I, I lived with a Danish family who did a great job of trying really hard to, to help me learn the language and, and speak to me in Danish, which is uh, the other issue because in Denmark, everybody speaks English. So there's always this temptation of, oh, do we just switch to English? But they did a very good job of keeping to it. I, I absolutely love Denmark. It's, I have a very close connection still. I before the pandemic, I'd go back every couple of months back to Denmark, back to Copenhagen and, and stay with my family. I became very enchanted in, and it affected me a lot of my political views, sort of this, this Danish emphasis on social responsibility, on collectivism, on caring about each other, but also in modesty. Modesty, I'm saying in the sense of, in a material sense, so not modest in like an evangelical sense of the word, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, I became very en enchanted with that worldview uh, and it's still something that stuck with me a lot today. You were taking Danish, you were in, thrown in, uh, you know, thrown in the deep end, so to speak, language-wise. How long did it take for you to feel comfortable with Danish? And how were you able to measure that vis-a-vis -vis other people? It took, I think, three months, I would say, where I, I started feeling comfortable with it. It's a bit of a, I have to say, out of all the places you can go on exchange, it's a little bit of a softball in the sense that Danish is not that far away from English. Uh, the grammar is not that complex comparison to German, right? German, you would know, of course, German has a, a kind of complex grammatical structure. Also, grammar is more similar to English than, of course, the Latin languages like Italian and Spanish. So it, it wasn't that hard to pick up. I think the biggest challenge with Danish is always the pronunciation. So there's this joke that Danish is like you're speaking with a hot potato in your mouth. It's like you're kind of swallowing your words a lot. 
And there's a lot of very strange sounds. So uh, like the classic tongue twister that every Dane asks a foreigner to say is, and that means it's a dessert. It's a it's a dessert. It's like a grain, okay. and then milflu means with cream. So it's this grain and in, in like a cream, cream sauce, not sauce, cream. It's in cream. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So they trick you by asking that. So didn't you have to take a language requirement or language tests at different proficiencies or something? Wasn't there something like that? I recall you saying. There was something with regard to that to compare with other students? Uh, no, I mean, I think I know what you're talking about. There, We had separately as exchange students, we had Danish lessons uh, every week, I think it was. And after every couple of weeks, they would give us a little test to kind of see where we were at. And yeah, people would compare the test. It wasn't an official comparison or anything. But we did have to, we did have to take classes and we did have to take the test and... If you if you weren't doing well on the tests, then somebody was gonna come talk to you about it. But to be fair, everybody, almost everybody I know, did did uh, very well on the tests and studied, so <laughs> wasn't a problem. We got you back your senior year, so we got you back at Mendocino High School to be on the improv club again. But then, when it came a chance to head for university. You, as the son of a European immigrant, your mom, uh, Antonia, is from Italy, you had a chance to study in the European Union, and you decided to study in Amsterdam. Tell us about that decision and why you chose, is it the University of Amsterdam? or? Yes, I guess uh, when I was talking about this enchantment with Denmark and sort of that worldview, I think that came hand in hand with a disillusionment with the United States. So to be honest, I kind of landed on the on the tarmac coming back from Copenhagen after a year and was kind of like, I want to head back. Um, yeah, I did not apply to any U.S. universities at all, actually. I only applied to European universities. And the European passport makes it quite easy because... Essentially, how it works in the European Union is, is if you have a European Union passport, you can study in any country with the same rights as uh, the nationality where you're studying in. So if I study in Denmark, I have all the same rights as uh, a Danish student, even though I'm Italian. So the big, big advantage of that is the, the tuition fee. That was a factor as well, let's say. But Amsterdam specifically, well, what I did is I applied to a bunch of universities across Europe. And during AE week, and this is why I couldn't join your AE week to Ashland. This is alternative education week at Mendocino High School where we go on trips, etc. Right, yeah, sorry, sorry. I went with Leah Har, and we traveled all around Europe on rail, and we took one or two planes, I think. But we, we mostly on rail all across Europe and visited all these different cities and universities. And... The, the one in, in Amsterdam just completely, uh, pretty much caught my heart. Amsterdam as a city itself uh, wasn't as much of a factor. It was more I was, I liked the program. I liked, I, I just got a good feeling from the university. Uh, and then, yeah, University of the Netherlands is 2,000 euros a year. Uh, university in, in the United States, we all know, is, is usually much more expensive than that unless you get a lot of scholarships. So all of that together, I think it was that whole package together which landed me in uh, eventually in, in Amsterdam. Are half the classes taught in English? Most of the classes taught in both languages? Or, you know, you have Nederlands, you have Dutch, and you also have English options. Yeah, so most classes are now in English some are in Dutch still, uh, but it's really, especially, so when I first started, more more classes were in Dutch, and, and you know, by the time I left, uh, you know, it's pretty much almost all English now. Without getting into, there's a very big cultural debate about that here in the Netherlands, but without getting into that, the main reasons for that are that uh, essentially, you know, all the textbooks and academic papers have to be written in English. So if you want, as an academic, if you want your work to be read, you have to write in English now. And as well in, in the professional world, uh, so in, in the business world, the medical world, uh, everybody speaks English now because we're in such a globalized world now that, that if you don't go out into the world speaking English, you're kind of at a professional disadvantage. So it's at those that combination of those two things that I think has really spurred the Netherlands to, in higher education at least, to move almost entirely to English, for better or worse. <laughs> 
early on uh, in your uh, university career, and perhaps going back to high school, uh, your cousin Giacomo and I used to conjecture that you might become an academic. Uh, and then, uh, because of your multiple uh, linguistic ability and interest, you mentioned about history, etc. But you seem to be heading in a journalistic direction. And I wondered if you had uh, decided that early on, or if that was just uh, part of an accident. The reason I ask is coming to the next question is, you end up starting to write for Vice Media, and perhaps you could tell us about your as your interest started to head in the journalistic direction. Yeah, it's a good question. So I guess I should start with actually what I studied in university. Um, so I, I did a, a double bachelor's in cultural anthropology and literature. Uh, and when I talk about cultural anthropology, because there's a bit of a difference between the U.S. and Europe, uh, cultural anthropology in Europe is the study of cultures in a modern context, right? So modern cultural discussions, how cultures flow across borders, et cetera. And because and, in the U.S., anthropology can mean, you know, studying, you know, but human bones and, and, and people from the Paleolithic and Neolithic eras. So anthrop cultural anthropology in Europe is focused on modern day people. Uh, and you talk a lot about political issues, a lot about international issues, history as well factors in always. So I think essentially I was talking all the time about political and cultural issues, social issues, and then I was also writing all the time. I think the combination of those two things kind of matches pretty well with, with journalism. I mean, I still haven't discounted going into academia or, or, or something like that. But for now, I got a little bit frustrated that in, in academia, there's a lot of jargon. There's a lot of layers of bullshit sometimes, put it that way, that you have to go through. And I found that frustrating at times because you need to talk about a topic or you want to talk about a topic, but you have to kind of go through all these channels before you, you want to talk about it. And, and, and that's both a good thing and a bad thing in the sense that, you know, you have to stick with the topic a lot of time and the discussion can be deeper in academia. But I also got frustrated at times that why are we writing in this super inaccessible language that nobody else can understand except if you're an anthropology major? Right. And, and I think the biggest moment where this stuck in my head was when I, I wrote my thesis and I sent it to my dad, who is not a dummy. He's a really smart guy. He read my thesis and, and my professors all understood what was going on in my thesis. But my dad was like, well, I don't really get what's going on here, you know. And that was kind of a wake up call for me in the sense of like, well, I want to be writing stuff that my dad can understand. I don't want the stuff I'm writing to be littered in jargon. You know, because I could write it in a way that my dad would understand, but I'm not because I have to write it in this very academic, jargon-laden way. So I got it so to get a good grade on my thesis, which I did, thankfully. But so that's a bit of a long-winded way of saying that I started uh, pitching uh, to to journalist outlets. Um, so Vice being one of them. Uh, and yeah, I, I got my first commission for an article. It was in Dutch, the first one. Uh, no, the first two were in Dutch. And yeah, things kind of started taking off from there. I started pitching more and, and yeah. From what I understand, uh, Vice started, I think, in Montreal, uh, Vice Media. And I think it started as a newspaper. Uh, the idea being they wanted to do sort of expose type stories. From what I understand, Vice Media quickly became international. I know the guy, uh, the Australian journalist who interviewed Trump, to Trump's great detriment, I think it was about a year plus ago. Can't remember his Jonathan something. I can't remember his name. Yeah, I don't remember the last name. Yeah. Well, he was terrific. But also, I was hearing about Vice and seeing them. They had a an HBO show for a while. I noticed they were doing hard hitting stuff along the line of Intercept. You started writing for Vice, and here you are at the time. What are you now? Twenty three. I'm twenty two. Twenty two. Well, there you go. I'm even giving you a year. Um, you've written quite a few articles for Vice at this point, mostly about European political and social issues. What were the initial back and forth with Vice? How did you crack into the to that group? Yeah, it's a good question. You're right. I mean, Vice tries to take a little bit of an alternative angle. It's also kind of a very unapologetically left wing publication. It makes no, it does not try to hide that it's coming usually from a pretty left wing angle. How I cracked in. So it's a very international media outlet and it has uh, offices in Berlin and Amsterdam, Italy, Paris, London, also now in Asia, uh, Middle East. 
South America. So it's everywhere. I think I kind of got a little bit lucky, to be honest. I was a bit in the right place at the at the right time because. I mean, I just love European politics and socialists in general. So I am able to hop around a lot to different countries. And, and I also have a little bit of a language background that makes it easier to do that. I can understand, most, read at least most of the Latin languages. German as well is not too difficult for me to at least get the idea of what's going on. So they were kind of looking for somebody to fill this role of, we need somebody who can talk about Europe a bit more widely. And I'd done a few stories for them on a freelance basis, completely freelance basis, about just sort of pan-European uh, social issues. And so I was really a freshie. I'd only done, I mean, five articles total in, in my entire journalist career. And they asked me, okay, do you want to come on with a regular, more regular contract? Uh, and I was kind of taken aback at the time. I, I really didn't, it hit me out of the left field. And I was a total freshie, and I'm still very much a journalist freshie. But... Um, I kind of I kind of learned by doing it also because I really started going it during the pandemic. So I was never in an office with colleagues. You know, I've always had to email or, or call somebody if something wasn't working out. I couldn't shout across the room like, you know, hey, I need a little bit of, uh, of help here. So I made a lot of mistakes, but I'm learning as I go along. But uh, it, it's a rough and tumble sometimes. I would like to go over a, at least a few representative articles that you've written to give our Snap Sessions audience an idea, because I am also very interested in European politics and uh, history. That was actually my major at Cal was uh, modern European history. It's fascinating to me that at this point you speak English, Italian, Danish, Dutch. Uh, do you speak Spanish too? No, I'm, I'm the fifth one I'm working on is Portuguese actually because my girlfriend's Brazilian. Oh yeah. So okay. yeah, so I'm, that's the next one I'm moving to. That is very impressive. And as you say, you could read German. Let's give a couple of examples of some of the uh, work you've done. This to me is a fascinating article from a, a German background type thing because it's about the former day day air, the former East Germany, but it's also about Tesla. And the article is called Activists Are Fighting to Stop Tesla from Clearing a Forest for a Gigafactory. And this is a classic case of an environmental issue meeting an economic issue. I wonder if you could talk about this article. Uh, just to give a little bit of background for people who aren't familiar with, with the situation, Tesla is building a massive Gigafactory, so a huge factory in, in uh, Germany um, near Berlin. And it's supposed to be the largest, actually, gigafactory in the world, so electric car factory in the world, when it's finished, if it's finished, let's say. The problem is, first off, a lot of European countries were competing to get this factory. So Estonia was really trying hard to get this factory, France as well, um, I think Italy. So, so when Germany got this, they were really happy, like, ah, oh, we got this because it's going to be a huge job center. And... This factory is being built, and like you said, the former DDR, which when we're talking about Germany, you know, there's higher rates of unemployment. You have this legacy, right, this historical legacy. It, it's poorer than the Western side of Germany. So people, some people there at least are very much like, okay, we need these jobs. We need this money in our economy. Also because, um, you know, since Tesla is such a big company, if they build a factory there, then other companies presumably will follow and, and build around it to create this sort of uh, infrastructure. Okay, sounds all good, but uh, there's a, a pretty rich natural habitat also near the factory and on the land that the factory is supposed to be built on. And so Tesla is going to clear this entire forest. Um, there's also concerns with water. So this factory needs a lot of water and this region already suffers from droughts. So a lot of environmental activists got really angry because Tesla wasn't doing its due diligence with clearing the forest. So there's a lot of local fauna and animals. So the, the tree snakes was the big one that are dormant in the winter. And Tesla was going to clear uh, this forest without actually relocating all these animals, uh, which are endangered. So there's this big fight where activists, environmental activists, went to the court and actually successfully got an injunction against Tesla to stop them from clearing this forest as of now. I think actually when I wrote the article, that hadn't happened yet, if I remember correctly. They hadn't successfully gotten the injunction, but they actually did. So there's this, there's this big debate in uh, Germany, like you said, between economy which is even a little more complicated because green, Tesla is technically electric. So it's not like yeah. these are gas guzzling cars that are being produced. 
and this forest. And, you know, uh, I spoke to a German politician, so the Green Party, right, which is, you, uh, you know, obviously not adverse to environmental causes. And the reaction I kind of got was a bit of an eye roll, like, oh, my God, these people are stopping this factory because of some tree snakes was kind of the, the reaction I got, which was very interesting coming from the Green Party. And meanwhile, I spoke to an environmental activist who said, like, we have laws here and uh, Tesla needs to respect these laws. You know, we have a way of doing things, which is relocating all the animals from this forest properly done. It takes three years, they said. Tesla wants to build their factory in one year. So there's also a bit of this clash between this American company that's kind of used to bulldozing over regulations and this complex set of German regulations that aren't used to being bulldozed over. So that's also part of the part of the tension there. This is a classic thing in a way. I mean, we've seen stuff like this in the US. As you may or may not know, Elon Musk is either threatening to leave California and go to Texas or is partially in Texas now, and the factory is still in the Fremont. They took over an old GM factory in Fremont. This is also a situation, though, where you know we want electric cars, we want an environmentally positive transportation future, yet we also want somebody who uh, is, is that way philosophically. So, I mean, this is you're running into a similar situation. I recommend the article to people to be able to get background on a, this sort of contradictory situation. And I like the way you're taking on these issues, which are not simple. Also, this other one you wrote about how the Netherlands is becoming a predictive policing hotspot. And this is a fascinating one, also a modern concern about algorithms and predictive policing. And this is a a Dutch-centered one, but it's something that's worldwide now. Yeah, exactly. So just to explain predictive policing first, uh, if everybody, anybody listening has seen the movie Minority Report, I think that's the quickest way for you to recognize what predictive policing is. So Minority Report, where there's uh, a machine that uh, perfectly predicts if you're going to commit a crime or a murder. And so essentially, you can think about this, this situation, Minority Report, and that's what police departments, uh, police agencies in, in some countries in the world are trying to do. Not to that level where they perfectly predict a crime, but using intense statistics, so things like your nationality, where you're living, how many people are in your household, whether you're raised by a single mom or a single dad, and computing what's the statistical likeliness that maybe you're going to commit a crime. Well, in the case of the Netherlands, let's say it's a little bit less on the nose than that. So what Netherlands, the Netherlands does is it uses a geographical system. So it splits the Netherlands on a map into little squares, and it says, okay, based on who is living here, and the the sort of socioeconomic uh, attributes of this neighborhood, what is the likeliness that a crime will predict here, right? So instead of saying, what's the likeliness that a person is going to commit a crime, it's saying, what's the likeliness that a crime is going to predict in this this, uh, location? Of course, the the sort of problem that we, we get back to time and time again is, you know, location itself is not a neutral thing, right? So everybody in the United States will be very familiar with the over-policing of uh, African-American neighborhoods, Black neighborhoods. In the Netherlands, we have a similar issue with the over-policing of migrant neighborhoods. And the idea is, if we're feeding data into an algorithm that's already biased, so if we're already over-policing uh, and then we're feeding that data back into an algorithm, we get a cycle where the algorithm, so to explain the cycle, the algorithm says, uh, okay, this neighborhood is a hotspot. So we over-police this neighborhood. And of course we catch some more crime there because we have more police officers there who are checking out every move of everybody there. So then we register more crimes and then we feed that data back into the algorithm. So it becomes what, uh, you know, in, in computer science, you call a feedback loop, right? Where it's, uh, becomes a perpetual cycle. So uh, I, I studied that in the Netherlands and, and the system there. Uh, and, and I spoke to some academics who were involved in that field. And what I discovered is that there's a lot of these predictive policing hotspots in the Netherlands. Uh, there's very little accountability, very little transparency on what's going on and how they actually work. But I was able to confirm that things like nationality do play a role in, in how... Um, 
these algorithms predict possible locations of a crime. And, and it's, it's something, like you said, that's not particular to the Netherlands. Uh, the Netherlands is one of the countries that's doing the most experiments in this field, but we see it a lot in the UK. We see it a lot in the United States. In fact, the Netherlands kind of, I think, learned from the United States in this, in this case. So the LAPD is, is another uh, police agency in the United States that's made extensive use and documented use of, of this type of technology, uh, as well uh, Atlanta PD as well in Georgia. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a big concern and I think it's a little bit going under the radar. I think we need to have a little bit of more discussion of, of what are the ethics of this technology? What are the limits we should shed? What, what should be, should you be able to predict where a crime could happen? Because there's an argument to say, well, maybe you, sh you should be able to do that. But I think we need to have a more robust discussion about it. And, and that's currently not really happening outside of, of privacy and surveillance circles. You've written a couple ones about the predictive policing. You also wrote about discriminatory log uh, algorithms wrongly accusing thousands of families of fraud. Similar idea. So it's really interesting what you're taking on. Another one you uh, take on is uh, talking about parents who chose to fight for ISIS in Syria and Iraq, and then what happens to the kids. This is one about a girl in Denmark. She's four, lives in Syria, uh, and has PTSI. Her country's debating if she can come home. This is a, a fascinating article. This has affected a lot of European countries, some Americans too. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I have this very close relationship with Denmark. So anytime I see news in Denmark, I always kind of, I'm very drawn to it because I'm also a bit more aware of the context. So yeah, so I guess to, to give a little bit of, of background, to put it very simply, that Denmark has an incredibly harsh immigration policy and refugee policy. I'm not sure if you would say the harshest in Europe, but definitely the harshest in Western Europe by a pretty significant margin. Uh, a famous story that was in the New York Times a couple of years ago, maybe at, when I was in Denmark still, was that uh, there was a Danish law that was passed that allowed authorities to take jewelry from refugees and migrants. So even though it was their personal jewelry, they were allowed to take it and, and confiscate it for the state. Um, and on a personal level, it's been very difficult for me in a sense to reconcile these two ideas of, of a country I very much love and, and look up to with, I mean, to be plainly, like, to be honest, just an immigration policy that is almost devoid of compassion and, and human empathy. It's a harsh, a harsh statement, but I think it's, it's true. And in this case, in this particular case, so this case concerns a, a mother, a Danish, so we're talking about not a, a second generation immigrant to Denmark, so Danish-Danish woman who was radicalized, uh, who went to join ISIS in Syria and brought her daughter along. Of course, I mean, you're bringing a, a young girl to a war zone. She was absolutely traumatized. Later on, after uh, NATO and allies in the region began winning the war against ISIS, uh, they were captured and they were put in a prison camp in Syria. Uh, Al-Raj is the name of the prison camp. And Danish medics came and checked on the girl and she's suffering from extreme post-traumatic stress uh, injury. And the debate is, well, these are Danish citizens, but can they come home? And there's sort of different op options, if you will. So either there's, we let the girl come home, just the young girl, and that's, uh, some parties are even against that. So some right-wing parties do not even want just the young girl to come home alone. Do we bring her back with the mother and then uh, the, the mother faces criminal charges in court because she's committed crimes is the other option. Uh, and so there's this big debate in Denmark over, over whether, uh, first of all, this girl should be allowed home, whether she should be allowed home with her mother, because uh, in a medical report commissioned by the Danish government, psychologists said that if this girl was separated from her mother, it would inflict like even more severe psychological trauma on the girl. So there's this this big debate going on and um, it still hasn't been resolved actually as we're speaking. I'm not sure where it will, but in the, in the time since then, this debate has actually moved even further in the sense that Denmark is one of the only European Union countries that's designated Syria or Damascus to be a safe place to return refugees. So Syrian refugees in Denmark are now being deported to Damascus and uh, it's caused a huge controversy uh, because uh, in one uh, in a, 
some cases, Syrian refugees have totally integrated into Danish society, are in high school, have learned Danish, are now getting notifications that the refugee status is being revoked and that they're going to be returned to, deported to Damascus. And uh, there's been a lot of reporting about it in Denmark, but Damascus is not a safe place to return to, uh, if only for the reason that Syria is ruled by um, Assad, who who was accused of using chemical weapons on his own people. But beyond all of that, where there's all the other reasons that we all know why Syria is not a safe place to be right now, still people are being deported. I kind of went on a rant there. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I, I welcome the rant, and we, we, we welcome that aspect of Gabriel Geiger for Snap Sessions. I mean, I wanted to ask you about one last article, and that's the one you wrote for The Guardian, at least the, one of the ones you've written. And this was an interesting one because it's called Lights Off, France parkour collectives fight pollution one store sign at a time. Now, I thought this was great, too, because this is also a modern eco issue. And as this is about people wasting power and keeping their signs on all night. I actually just saw this randomly. A friend showed it to me, a French friend of mine. I have a lot of, just by chance, I guess, a lot of my friends are, are Parisian. I don't know how I ended up being that way, but they are. Um, so a friend of mine from Paris showed me this thing on social media, this parkour collective. So people don't know, parkour is this uh, acrobatic sport. I don't know, you may have seen it on YouTube where people are scaling buildings really quickly and jumping around. It's, it's really impressive. And what they were doing was they were going on uh, and turning off store lamps. So you're talking about, I don't know, something like Toyota and the store in Paris has this big sign that they keep on all night. And they go and there's this little switch that they have to legally have in in France that turns off the power. It's, it's actually usually meant for firefighters, but it's usually very high up. So these parkour guys climb up and they flip the switch to turn the turn the light off. And the idea is we're sending a message about light pollution. It was great. I got to talk to the one of the, the guys who, who does it. And uh, it was one of the rare, rare moments where I actually <laughs> wrote a, a, a feel-good story, let's call it, right? There wasn't really much, uh, it, it wasn't a negative story, you know, it wasn't traumatized people not being let back into their countries. It was it was a positive movement and, and it felt very nice to, to be able to to write that. And I was very impressed by um, this movement. They're out there on, in Paris every Friday night doing the same thing. This is actually something that affects all of us, uh, light pollution. In more urban areas, Ken and I live in a relatively rural area here in Northern California, which you grew up in Mendocino Coast. But in, in so many urban areas, light pollution is a problem. And people can't see the stars or the sky or anything at night. But it also just keeps people awake. Bzz, bzz, neon type uh, lights and so on. So this is an interesting, uh, it's a combination with parkour, you know, the kind of uh, acrobatic, athletic young guys running up, jumping up and turning signs off, and with it, with political intent, so that it's kind of an interesting aspect too. So here we see that you've been writing all these different kind of articles, but with it in mind, to, to me, it reminds me of the muckrakers of the early part of the 20th century. For those who need historical context, um, Teddy Roosevelt, it, during the Progressive Era, his his terms as President of the United States, he used to uh, get angry with uh, muckraking journalists, which were the likes of uh, Ida B. Tarbell, Lincoln Steffens, and others, who would write articles that where they d dig up the muck, some background, on some relatively horrible practice by Standard Oil or meat packers or whatever powers that were that were abusing the public trust. And um, they would write these articles and he labeled them muckrakers. They would turn over the straw to get to the underlying muck. It strikes me that in a lot of ways you're doing sort of a contemporary version of that. I wondered if you might speak to the power of journalism to um, bring a light on those kind of issues. I'm, I'm very honored that you compare me to, to those journalists. I think it's something I'm getting better at of scooping the muck. I, I still need to get better. But, you know, for instance, right now I'm in I'm on a team of journalists with The, the Guardian and Spiegel and we're working on Spiegel in Germany. Um, and we're working on a long-term investigation, and I'm and I'm learning a lot from that um, about really digging up things uh, that, that people maybe don't want, don't want to come out. And I think we really need journalism right now, uh, especially in this era where facts are are always being contested, and we're always getting accusations of fake news. 
at the same time, it's a very difficult time to be in the media because there is so much distrust. And even, I mean, I get tons of hate mail every week. You know, so it is a time where it's it, it's it's a tough time for journalism. There's, you know, also there's a lot of a lot of traditional forms of journalism are are also being attacked. Is not the way best word, but being displaced, let's say, by newer forms of media like Twitter and 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 even podcasts, right? But I think that's more positive than than negative. But uh, I think I think we still really much need journalism, and I think there is a future for good journalism. It's hard to say right now how things are going to shake out i think journalism could look very different in 10 years from now than than it looks now and and that can be because in the medium maybe we're doing more podcasts than written articles or maybe we're doing more videos than uh written articles but it would be very interesting to see but i think personally for me whether i'm in journalism or academia i'll i'll be uh trying to dig up the muck so <laughs> well good for you for digging up the muck i mean i think that that's a great thing and the whole business about fake news and the onslaught of uh, against journalism and the onslaught against truth telling has been a difficult thing to watch i'm almost 70 at this point i'm 68 right now and there could be accepted truths that you'd start from growing up i would always say well at least we can argue these from these points it seems like right now because of the purposeful obfuscation of truth that that has gone somewhat amiss and in some ways you're on the forefront of something that's going to change over your lifetime and I'm glad to have people like you on that. I think your ability to get to the truth and your desire to will make a difference. So I'm positive on that score. So Thanks. Before we go, I, I would just want to check, you know, here you are. You mentioned you're 22. When will you turn 23? I'm turning 23 on July 21st. Do you imagine yourself staying in Europe indefinitely or coming back to the U.S. or maybe being an international citizen? You know, apropos of that, the advantages of being an international person? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I thought about it a lot. I haven't been back to the US in nearly three years now, partly because of the pandemic, but also because I was doing other things. I don't think I'm going to the US anytime soon, permanently, or in, in a long-term sense. I don't know if I'll stick in Europe for, for a long time. I, I went where I met my girlfriend right now. I went to Brazil two summers ago, and I was completely enchanted by Latin America. So I think that might be my my next stop after Europe. I don't know how much longer I'll stay here, but I think if I'm thinking about my next stop, it might be Latin America. So I guess let's say, let's say international citizen might be my future, at least in the next decade. We'll see after that. Do you have any last thoughts about nationalism or the recent uh, sort of fascist tendencies of various nationalistic governments? Um, I have my own opinions. I don't want to lead you too far in that direction. But uh, and any thoughts on that before we, we head out? Oh, it's a tough question. It's a huge problem in Europe. In some ways, it can be even a larger problem in Europe than the United States. Let, let me put it this way. I think in a political sense, the rise of the far right in Europe, in Western Europe, let's say, has been stemmied. It's not as strong as it was a few years ago. The flip side of that is that the far right and the nationalist parties in Europe have been able to drag the discussion more on their terms than it was four years ago. So that's something that we see in Denmark too, where the government is being run by the left-wing parties, the social democrats, you know, social democrats. And yet we have this very hardline immigration stance because they've been dragged to the right by nationalist parties. So I think that's the future of Europe, unfortunately, is that nationalist parties may not be in power, which thank God, but I think they still have a lot of power to bring the discussion more on their terms. And I think that's going to be a big issue in the next years. You know, Gabriel, as usual, uh, you're very thoughtful and uh, an interesting discussion. I have been delighted to be part of your last 10 years or so. I want to say hello uh, to your mom and dad, Antonia and Will, in Italy, and your sister, Allegra. It's really great that you're working as a journalist in Europe now, and I'm really glad that we got a chance to have you on Snap Sessions. Thank you very much, Gabriel. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was wonderful speaking with you again, Doug. It was great. 
Thanks to our artist activist of the show, investigative journalist Gabriel Geiger of Vice Media Group. Our production team includes tech meister Marshall Brown, jack of all trades Ken Kraus, writer interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. We depend on the support of listeners like you to cover our monthly podcast and transcription service costs. Please join us as a Snap Session supporter. We have support levels from Little Snapper to Snappus Maximus. Thanks to all of our generous supporters.